Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there, there's some, for me anyway, some, some deep things I want to uh, share. And uh, I realized that we, we've been working on a, a theme for, for a bunch of years now. And so I just sort of like to just to, to openly declare it. One of, one of the things we've been working on, um, because I, I just think that this is a, um, an inescapable piece of knowledge if you actually want to be tuned into what's really going on in, in, in the world, if you want to be, if you want to be smart, uh, if, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm using that, that, that word slightly ironically because of uh, what I'm about to tell you next, which is, which is that how absolutely essential it is for us to stand before the, just the, the vastness of the universe and to be able to say, I can't possibly comprehend it all. That until a person is, is intellectually honest and, and, and realizes that there are levels of information that we will never be in touch with, that we simply cannot know, that we can't ever even begin to know. In other words, the premise of knowing has to be that I can't know everything. And then with that as a premise, then I can begin to actually assess where I'm at. Said another way, that there's something larger than all of us that we will never fully be able to wrap our minds around. You know, there's a, uh, a moment in, in this week's Parsha, in Kisisa, where Hashem says very famously, no one can see my face and live. What, what does that mean? Because to see, homiletically, to see God's face means to be completely in touch with everything God knows. So in other words, you can't live because at that moment you're also God. In other words, if you see God's face, you know everything God knows, and then all of a sudden you're not you anymore, you're God. So, so we have to understand there, there is a creator. And he created our brains. And one of the bitter ironies of human existence is that we then use this brain that God created and we use it to tell God what he can and can't do, what he's capable of and what he's not capable of. To not realize that our brains and logic itself, that logic itself is a creation, that our brains are hardwired in a certain way and that God is beyond logic as well. So, so he's certainly not limited to it. Um, one example that I always like to, to reference and it, it, is this idea that um, in, in geometry, in, in basic geometry, the definition of parallel lines is that they never intersect. That is the definition of parallel lines. But if you get a little bit fancy in terms of more advanced mathematics, there's something called geometry against a curved space. And that's called non-Euclidean geometry, okay? So in, 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 in that instance, parallel lines actually intersect. So you, that's, you say, well, wait a second. That's the one thing parallel lines absolutely can't do. You're right. In two-dimensional geometry, or, you know, like regular Euclidean geometry, you're right. They absolutely can intersect. But when you add another dimension, when you talk about three-dimensional geometry or geometry against a curved space, they can intersect. So I, I always go back to that example because things that are absolutely paradoxes, 
can't be explained. In this dimension, God is not limited to the confines of this dimension. God created logic, right? But he is beyond that. He is not subject to that. So this, to me, is one of the absolute premises. And you see, so, so now let's phrase it in a more surprising way, which is, if you want to actually be smart, you have to realize that you can never know everything. <laughs> so, so, so I remember talking with someone who was like very smart, and I, I said that to him, and he was like, what? He was shocked by that idea, because for many, many people, and there's good reasons why you would think the, the way I'm about to explain, there have been such rapid, mind-bending advances in technology, in science, in absolutely everything, which, is, which are all real and all causes to celebrate the, the greatness of, of, of humanity and, and what, what God, what God you know, made in us and in our intellect and our creativity and everything like that, that one could think that these advances have this, this non-stop momentum that will ever widen out and that at some point every question will be answered. But this is not the case, you know? I, 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 uh, I remember many times I, I would learn with someone and we would try to, or I would try to take the, the premise that we had just learned and I'd just take it a few steps further and sometimes reach conclusions that just were not, were just silly. And, and he would always say, you know what, that far we don't go. <laughs> In other words, you, there, just because you have a logical chain doesn't mean that you can forever extend that logical chain and it will always be logical. You will hit a wall of illogic at a certain point. And that's not a contradiction to the earlier extrapolations, which are accurate. But when you say, therefore, a dog is a cat, <laughs> you know, no, a dog is not a cat. A dog is a dog and a cat is a cat. Yes, they're both delightful. Yes, they're both pets. Therefore, a dog is a cat. No, that's, no, you just hit the logical wall at that point. Yes, we're capable of knowing vast amounts and our knowledge is going to get even more amazing and more surprising as virtual reality and augmented reality become more and more integrated into our lives. Just the, the world is going to increasingly become a total fantasy land. A total fantasy land. But that doesn't mean that the infinite will be able to wrap itself around the or rather the finite will be able to wrap itself around the infinite. The finite will remain finite. The infinite will remain infinite. Remember, the angels say, and this is something that we say in our prayers, um, praised is God from his place. M meaning to say that even angels, which are dimensions higher than us, can't completely grasp the fullness of God. Because it's all kind of Stratify. They're, they're stratus. Okay. So, I want to add one more thing. And, and I just, I always feel compelled to say this because um, when, when you sort of like say, well, there's a limit to what we can know, that, that sounds like perhaps you're coming from a, um, a, an anti-intellectual place. 
and and it's it's the opposite. I'm I'm trying to come from the most intellectual place, but the most honest place at the same time. And just so you know, my background is very very academic. You know, I mean, I I, I went to very academic places to Bronx Science, to Harvard, to places that prize knowledge, and I I prize knowledge. I I, I want to continue to learn my entire life. But at this point, I, I have seen enough to know that it's intellectually dishonest to take as a premise that a person can know everything. That's not, that's not the world we live in. That's not reality. Okay. The, we're going to get to Torah teachings very, very soon that are going to illustrate these points in a very, I, I think, very beautiful, amazing way. But I just want to lay that out as a theme. So what happens when you take this approach that I'm talking about in terms of real life, using it as a, as a spiritual tool, right? Well, I think that a person can, can be more at peace because, because a person can sort of like understand that one of the sort of default settings, so to speak, of, of the human condition is um, mystery. See, human beings are very, we're, we're very uncomfortable with lack of certainty and not knowing. It causes great anxiety in our lives. But if you understand that one of the inescapable aspects of being a human being is this idea that you, you will live with mystery, you will live with uncertainty, then I think that, that, that you can sort of like accept that on a more philosophical level. Because you can say, well, wait a second, there's just, I live amidst infinity, and I'm finite, you know what I mean? And I'll continue to run after the infinite, and we should, we have to, we have to, and we can grow, and we can become more and more expansive. It doesn't mean that there's a ceiling to us. We can continue, in fact, we have an obligation to continue to grow, to become greater and greater vessels to hold more and more of the infinite, but to capture the entirety of the infinite, that's, that's, that's where you hit the wall. Or if you want to have very simple, a very simple way of visualizing it, can a cup hold the entire ocean? It's, it's silly to think that it can. It's silly to think that it can. Okay. So, you know, let's just go into it a little bit deeper and then we'll get into some, some Torah texts. So, you see, I, w- I was talking with a, a friend who, you know, is very spiritual and spiritually inclined, but, but, but couldn't shake the not knowing aspects of it. Could, couldn't, couldn't shake that. And, and I realized that, that I could sort of like sum up the differences in our approaches in terms of a model which is what I would call um, top-down or bottom-up. Okay? And I think that this is a very useful model for us to keep in mind when we interact with our our friends and everything like that. And there's, I'm encapsulating a lot in this this very simple model, I think. So so what is the bottom-up model? The bottom-up model is that let me explore the world around me. Let me see what the textbooks are saying and the scientific journals are saying and everything like that. 
and I will build from the bottom up a series of premises and I'll see if they're supported and then based on that I'll reach a conclusion. And by the way, for the basic scientific method, that is absolutely, that's a glot kosher approach. We want that approach. That's a very good approach. But, but in terms of wrapping our mind around existence itself, it, 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 it has its shortcomings. In fact, it's, it's, it's doomed to failure, okay? But let me explain why. So in other words, the bottom-up approach says, well, wait a second, we've got these fossils, and they're, you know, zillions of years old, and you're saying that the universe is only that amount of years old, and by the way, there's a very simple answer to that. It's very, very deep, though. Very, very deep, though. Which is the idea... And by the way, no one should get tripped up by this question about the age of the universe. Um, there, there, there are a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of... I, for, for me, anyway, very compelling, interesting ways to understand it. But you should know that going back to the, uh, the 1100s, a student of the Ramban already was saying that the universe was 14 billion years old. All right, you can see Rabbi Ari Kaplan shows his math, which is phenomenal, which is, in other words, basically a thousand years ago we were already saying this. The Vilna Gon says that the first three days of, well, first four days of creation, before the Torah itself says that God hung the sun and the moon in the sky, the Vilna Gon says we're billions of years. Right? So, 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 and when we say that the calendar is 5,700 and whatever it is, 77 years old, whatever the year is, the first Rosh Hashanah was by the birth of Adam on the sixth day of creation. So when we say it's 5,000 years old or whatever it is, that's counting from the, the creation of man, not from the creation of the universe. That's just a very simple thing. But here's the deeper thing that, that I particularly like, which is that God can create in one second a universe that's billions of years old. And uh, a friend of mine gave an example that I thought was also interesting. He said, to illustrate that point, to create, you can create something that's billions of years old. So, so imagine walking into a play, right? And in the, you, you know, the curtain goes up and you're at the play, and all of a sudden you find out that um, you know, this one uh, knew that one for 30 years, right? Like they're sitting in a cafe together, but you find out in the first line of dialogue or whatever it is that they were childhood friends. They've known each other for 30 years. So anyway, he goes further into this, this, this metaphor. But, but do you see immediately here how the play is one second old and yet you're already accessing a world that's like decades old? Just a small example, but just a, another way of supporting this idea. Okay, anyway. So, so, and of course we say that there were worlds that existed. Our, our tradition is that God created and destroyed many worlds before this world. Okay, so, so you have the idea then that, uh, that, that things like fossils and dinosaurs and all the rest, the, these are not, these are not, problems basically so but anyway but anyway getting back to the point 
the idea being that um, that if you take a bottom up approach and you're not sort of familiar with these type of arguments that I'm that I'm presenting and things like that then all the all you see is problems all you see is problems and all you see is like just um, just reasons to disconnect or not to take these sources seriously okay so that's that's that that's the problem with the bottom up approach now let's take the top down approach so i personally think that the top down approach makes way more sense <laughs> which is why i'm standing here saying these things to begin with so what is the top down approach the top down approach is let's 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 take darwin at his word and let's say that everything started, all of life started with a single cell organism and, and developed from there, right? My question is, who created the single cell organism and where did the fabric of time and space come from to hold the single cell organism, right? So, so or let's go to the Big Bang Theory, right? Which there are Torah sources for that in, 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 in the Torah's language about illustrating the exact same thing, that God took a single point of matter and then expanded it out and made the entire universe. That's thousands of years old. That's a, that is the Big Bang Theory. But, but let's take it from a scientific point of view. So that there was a single point and it exploded and it created the universe. So where did that single point come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from? Right? So, so you know... It, So where did it come from? So science can't answer that because science can just get to the first moment of creation, but it can't get beyond the first moment of creation. But when you see the vast structure of the universe, the vast order of the universe, to posit that there's a creator is not unreasonable at all. In fact, you can even say it's compelling and totally logical and explains absolutely everything. So when you take the approach that there is a God who made the world, this is the top-down approach, then any question that you have within the world isn't a question anymore. Because God made everything in the world, which means God made the world and He also made science. So the God who made the world made science. So how can science disagree with God? Either you're not understanding God correctly or you're not understanding the science correctly. But, but, but there is no contradiction. Now, now you will, that doesn't mean that now you're going to be able to explain every single thing. But they don't become like crisis-inducing questions anymore. You go, I don't know, but God who made the world knows. That's, that's enough for me. And that's not anti-intellectual at all. It's the opposite. It's taking the full macro view of all of existence and realizing that a God who can create the fabric of time and space and keep trillions of galaxies going without crashing into each other in this exquisite ballet, right, of gravitational, you know, movements, and order our DNA to the exactitude and subatomic particles to its exactitude, and to keep everything going simultaneously, 
that, that's a God I can defer to. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, we have a question for the audience. God, why don't you take that one? I'm going to just throw that question to you. You know, I mean, what's the problem? There's no problem. Now, anyone who calls that anti-intellectual, I, I, I respectfully disagree with. I respectfully disagree with them. Okay. So now, let's go deeper. So, so we just had a holiday, and we're going to have another holiday, which are basically founded on these things that we've been talking about right now. We have Purim, and we have Pesach. Purim is all about getting to this place called Adaloyada, which is a place beyond knowing. That's what we've been talking about right now. Prizing the faculty of knowing, but understanding that there's this vast terrain that exists called beyond knowing. And that to inhabit both of those stratas simultaneously is to actually be in touch with the reality of the world itself and the reality of our own existence. Now, something really amazing, something really amazing happened in terms of our history. Basically, you see, one of the things I, I you should, I, bless me, I should be able to do this one day, which is just to collect all of the things that I've learned over the years about Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, and the tree of knowledge, the tree of life, everything like that, and to be able to collect them into a book. Because I, I just... I just think that that's, that is a great place to start because that, that is something, anyone who's studied these things knows how endlessly deep they are. And it's, it's simultaneously the type of thing that someone who is unfamiliar with the depth of Torah study will be the quickest to dismiss. Right? And so it, it just feels like very worthy of really being presented at least in, in, in some of its depth in an accessible way. Um, because I think when you really learn about Adam and Chav and the tree of knowledge and, and the tree of life and everything that was going on, you can't look at the Torah the same way. You can't. Because you realize, wow, I totally did not understand what was being communicated here in the simplest way, but in the deepest way. So, so the idea is that at a certain point, at a certain point, the nature of the, of the human condition, and by the way, we are hardwired to think this way. This is not completely our fault. God puts us this way and then asks us to get out of it. See, listen, you, you, can, you can put someone in a clean room and say, keep it clean. But you could also put someone in a dirty room and say, clean it up. <laughs> They're both completely valid starting points. So there are certain things. You see, we have this fundamental principle. It, it's in the, the, the Tehillim. It's sur meira tov, which means turn away from bad and do good. There are these twin things. So, so both are required from us. 
we have to actively be involved in doing good, and we have to be actively involved in avoiding bad. Okay? So sometimes God will give us certain attributes, and you say, well, if God gave us this attribute, that must mean it's holy and beautiful and wonderful. Right? And so why would I ever want to run away from that? But that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a human being and what it means to be in this world. There are certain things that God says, go be charitable, be, be kind. And we have to actively run after that. But there are also other things that God gives us, certain traits that God gives us, and he says, run away from those things. And, and we're born with those things. We're, we're dealt that hand. You know, Rabbi David Aaron once said this, and it stayed with me, which was, you know, can you imagine someone refusing to get out of their diapers because they say, but it's natural, right? Like, why would I, this is how I was born. Why would I want to get away from this? It's, it's, it's natural, which means it's beautiful, which means God wants it. No, no, it's so obvious and clear that that's not right. But then that requires change. But that shows you that change is, 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 is in the system and is normal. That not everything can just be embraced and called beautiful because I was born with it. So, so this condition that we know, I know, I know, you know, I, I think I shared with it with you once before. It was a very embarrassing moment for me. Uh, my one of my most beloved and revered teachers, rabbis, was in our house, and I found myself getting into an argument with my wife in front of him. I couldn't even tell you about what it was. Whatever it was, it was completely incidental and stupid. But I, I, for some reason, I just felt so so certain about something and I was I was actually arguing the point and I was like I'm absolutely sure of it and and the rabbi turned to me very quietly and respectfully at one point and said the fact that you're absolutely sure of it is actually not a sign of anything <laughs> and, and I was like okay okay yeah, sorry. <laughs> we have to understand that there, there is not a hundred percent correlation between our certainty and our our being right. You know. So you know when you get to when you start to let go of these type of things, you say you say, well, wait a second. Now I've got no firm ground ground to stand on anymore. You're right, but that can be liberating, so you can float. <laughs> right? Who wants to stand when they can float, you know? I mean, I'm talking about a certain state of mind. We've got to have our feet on the ground, you know, in terms of being responsible. But, but there is a certain liberation comes from that comes with not sort of holding on to things that we just simply really don't know. Okay. So basically the idea is 
We live in a universe where we can't know everything, and yet God created us thinking that we do in fact know everything, and that we can in fact know everything. And that's, in the simplest terms, what it means that we ate from the tree of knowledge. That, that, that's what it means. That means that we will be born and go through life unless we turn from the bad, unless we actively, each one of us in our own lives, unless we individually actively uproot this trait, get out of our diapers, if you will, unless we actively uproot this trait, we will be cursed, so to speak. And that's probably not the wrong word to use in this context to think that we always know. Or that we know in the deepest, most profound way. Okay. So, when you get to the place of Adam and Chava, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, that's this state called Adaloyada. Right? This place of not knowing. And of course, you know, that's the great state of mind of poor. Right? Now, it says... When we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, that we were like Adam and Chava before we ate from the tree of knowledge. That means that through all the experiences of Pesach and all the miracles that we saw, and the fact that the whole world, the whole nature of the world got turned upside down. And remember, there were ten miracles which correlate with the ten spherot, which correlate with the smashing of idols on every single level, that basically we saw clearly that there is one God, that he's actively involved with our lives in this world, that he's not subject to the limitations of nature, in fact, that he controls every aspect of nature, and that it's one God who does everything. And on top of all that, we were all unified with each other. See, it it was like there's a lot going on at the same time. When all of those things came together, then we reached this level of Adam and Chava before eating from the tree of knowledge. Okay? And then we said these words, Nase Venishma. These are the this was the great moment of the Jewish people for all time until Mashiach comes. Which means we will do and we will hear. Meaning to say. God, you don't have to explain it to us first. We already know that it's you. We already know that it's all good. We'll do it. Just tell us what to do. And God says back, who taught you the secret of angels? Right? Right? This is what the angels wanted to know. Like, because this is the level of angels. Because God is so, in the higher dimension, so openly revealed, even amidst his infinity, even amidst the fact that they can never fully grasp God, but nonetheless they've got such a clear understanding of God, that it's not even a question. God, explain yourself. What do you mean by that? Really, what's so hard about wool and linen together? (laughs) Can't I, you know, do I seriously have to check? You know, like, no. They're like, whatever it is, whatever it is. And remember, the Torah that the angels are learning is on on the highest levels. They're learning the same Torah, But remember, each letter of the Torah goes all the way up, multi-dimensions up into heaven. And the way it looks in all the different spheres is completely different. So they're studying the same Torah, but at the same time, what does that, what does the mitzvah not to have shotnets look like in the higher spheres, right? 
I'd like to know. You know, it would be interesting. You know, it came to me the other day. It kind of blew me away. We're always talking about the first letter of the Torah. So I want to say this Torah. I haven't seen this yet. That the base of Breshis, right, is that this first letter of the Torah is telling you, this is the way that we're going to learn the Torah in this dimension, but there are higher dimensions where they're going to start learning the Torah too. The same Torah, but in a completely multi-higher dimensional level. Right? So just know that, you know, and I'll tell you, one of the great stories, if you have a chance to listen to it, Rabbi Shlomo tells it, it's, a, it's, a, it's called Moshele the Ganif, maybe, which means uh, like Moshele the, the Thief. If you can maybe YouTube that, that, that story, it's really awesome. And basically it's, in my opinion, you know, it's Reb Shlomo telling about himself, but it's, it's about basically when the, the Baal Shem Tov died and there was this thief who always got a, a brocha from him that the police should stop chasing after him. And one time the, he's, he, he pulls off this like big heist you know, the biggest of his life, and he runs to get a brocha from the Baal Shem Tov, and they say to him, didn't you hear? The Baal Shem Tov left this world. And he was like, what am I going to do? So he goes to, to the Todos and gets a, tries to get a brocha from him, but he was you know, a little more strict than the Baal Shem Tov, and he's like, you stole? Get out of here! And so he doesn't know what to do, and he goes and he starts, he goes to the Baal Shem Tov's grave, and he lies down, and he's crying his eyes out. And he hears from Shemayim, the Baal Shem Tov, tell him, listen, I, before I died, I had you in mind. I didn't forget about you. And you can go to the Degel Machine Ephraim, um, who is a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov, who was alive at that point, a relative of the Baal Shem Tov, and you go get a brocha from him. And here's why I'm telling you the story. He says, he says, every week I'm learning with him how the Torah is learned in heaven. So I'm going to teach you right now how the Torah is being learned in heaven right now. When you say oh, these Torahs over to him, he'll know that you're telling the truth. And then he himself becomes transformed over time into into a, a big master. And they say, we don't know his name because we never wanted him to be embarrassed. So the way the Torah is being learned in heaven as well. So... So the idea is that when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, we understood for real in the realest, most tangible way that there was only one power in the entire world and that was God. And that all of nature was not some other God or some other power, but was only controlled by God. And there was complete love and harmony. We were like one person with one heart at Mount Sinai. And when all of those things came together in the realest way, then basically all the heavens opened up for the highest highest levels of knowledge to come down, which was the receiving of the Torah, which is us above the tree of knowledge, like Adam and Chava above the tree of knowledge, because now we had integrated into our minds the notion of knowing and not knowing simultaneously as one coherent model.
Okay. Now, tragedy strikes. Shortly thereafter, tragedy strikes, and we worship the golden calf. Now, when we said these words, Naase Venishma, we will do and we will hear, it says, the Gomorrah explains that the angels came and put crowns on our head. Two crowns, one for Nase, one for Nishma, right? From we will do and we will hear. But after we worship from the, after the whole Chete Egel, the, the golden calf incident, see, here's the thing. Basically, just so you know, what happened with the golden calf, and it, it's a very deep subject, but just to explain it in one sentence from the Brisker Rav, basically, you see, if you say we made an idol, we made a statue, then I have a, then I have a question for you. If you say that was the problem, I have a question for you. How could it be that in the Holy of Holies, on top of the golden ark, the Arna Kodesh, where the tablets were kept, there are two gold angel statues on top of it. That, that should be the biggest form of idol worship in the entire world. So what's the difference between that? If you want to say the problem was that we made a statue, what's the problem, what's the difference between that in the Holy of Holies and the fact that we made a golden calf? And the answer is very, extremely simple. God told us to make that, and he didn't tell us to make the golden calf. It's as, it's as straightforward and simple as that. So then why did we make the golden calf? Because we wanted to make the golden calf. Uh, and now all of a sudden you've got this paradigm-level shift and disconnect. Giant shift and disconnect. Epic, epic-level shift and disconnect. Because we decided how we're going to serve God and we become the final authority. Major epic shift in consciousness. Now, with all that in mind, I want to share with you the following. It kind of came to me and kind of just kind of blew me away. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read you the, the verse. It's uh, in Shmos in Exodus 33, chapter 33, verse 4. So I'll read you in the Hebrew, then I'm going to tell you some English. Or the, the other way around. The people heard this bad tiding, meaning that, that Hashem was very, very upset about the, the golden calf. And they became grief-stricken. This is all of us, because we were all there. And it says, and we took off our crowns. So this is how Rashi understands it. We, we removed our crowns. So now look at this. Normally speaking, the word for crown would be keter. And there's a lot of Torah on that word. But, but anyway, let's, let's, let's look at the word that they use here. It says, the word that's used in the Torah is edyo for crown. Okay? So now you can ask yourself, well, wait a second, if we, like Rashi is saying, we took off our crowns at this moment, right? So 
first of all, why did we take off, off our, we have two questions, why did we take off our crowns, and what is this word edio being used instead of keter, okay? So, so what does a crown do? A crown sits above the head. In other words, a crown is this area which is super rational, not irrational, but beyond what the mind can comprehend. That's what we've been talking about this whole talk. The idea that to, to be aware that the mind can only grasp so much, and then there are dimensions beyond that. So when you're in touch with those dimensions, and you're able to sort of like incorporate that, the, the not knowing alongside the knowing, and that it becomes a beautiful, coherent, harmonious whole, as opposed to some internal contradiction, not an internal contradiction, but two beautiful stratifications, the knowing and then the beyond knowing, right? Then the beyond knowing becomes a crown on your head. Do you have it? Okay? That's the area that's sitting above the tree of knowledge. That's the idea of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. That's the crown. That's above. Okay? Now look at this. It says... After we ate, for, after we worshipped the golden calf, we removed our crowns, right? Look at this, the, these letters, edio for crown, not ketra, edio, why? If you rearrange the letters, it spells out yodea, to know. In other words, our crowns became transformed and dropped a quantum level and we were stuck back into this idea of knowing. And then I was thinking, okay, wow, so these are the letters. Remember, the Torah is working on every single le level, you know? These are, th that, these are the levels. Or this is one level. Using the, all the letters there. So then, and you know how else you can rearrange the letters? Voida meaning woe is knowledge. <laughs> you know? Vav Yud Daladayan. Right? So I was thinking, okay, so let's let's go further. Let's 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 take this thought further. What's the gamatra of Edyo? And it's it's a heartbreaking gamatra. It's it's ninety. Now, you know, we, we, we often reference this, this number in, in these talks, which is 91. 91 is two names of Hashem, Yudke Vavke and Aleph Taud Nun and Yud, which basically stands for God, who is God of heaven and earth. In other words, it's a very, very wonderful number, right? Because it, 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 it shows you the divinity of God's mastery over the infinite and the finite within borders and beyond borders. That's heaven and earth. And so, all of a sudden, edyo, all of a sudden, it becomes about knowing. All of a sudden, it's 90 and not 91 because it's the separation of heaven and earth. It's hinting at the fact that all of a sudden, there's no harmonious integration of the finite and the infinite, but now it's broken off. God once again becomes an abstraction. But then, 
I realized the following, and it, 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 I started crying, actually, when, when, when... Because if you look in that Gomorrah, in Masech Shabbos, if you look in that Gomorrah, it says that our crowns were removed from our heads, but they will be restored again. And I thought, wow. So, 90 will become 91 again. How do you add the one? If you add the oneness of God to your thinking, (laughs) that's the restoration of the crowns. Right? Because when you realize that God is one, then you understand there is no contradiction, there is no other power, there is no other force. As the Lubavitcher Rebbe explained so beautifully, the Medrash says that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo. How is an echo formed? It bounces, the sound waves bounce off of something that, that aren't sound waves, like a mountainside or a wall or a cave, right? But what happens when there is nothing other than God? How could there be an echo? There can't be an echo because there's no non-God for the God to bounce off of. <laughs> so when it says in Pirkei Avos that that the voice of Mount Sinai can still be heard. That's another way of saying that there is no other power than God. So that these teachings are forever, ever, 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 ever ongoing and relevant. And don't be fooled. Don't be one of those people who's fooled by the superficial clothing of the letters in terms of this narrative. So you say, well, if it's really forever, how come, where's the reference to, to the internet? And, and why, I don't, why don't I see, you know, electron microscopes? Or, 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 or like, wh- wh- where's all of that? Because this is just the superficial garb of the Torah. The Torah is forever. It's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it's just a question of knowing how to learn it to be able to access those depths. So, so it's no coincidence that the rabbis were very, um, very uh, deliberate about making sure that the consciousness of Purim goes right into the consciousness of Pesach. Remember, if there are two Adars, like, if you asked me, if there are two Adars, when should we celebrate Purim? I would have told you the first one. Because you want to run to do a mitzvah. So let's put it in the first Adar. But the rabbis were like, no, you put it in the second Adar. But why? Because the rabbis explained very, very straight out. Because we want to connect Purim and Pesach. So this consciousness of Purim, which is to be above the tree of knowledge, Right when you're above the tree of knowledge, when you're in this place of Adaluyada, right, which is the which is a lot of the simcha of 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 Purim itself and of Adar itself. Remember, don't make the mistake of thinking that when we say that we increase in joy in Adar, that that goes up to Purim, and then it's it's an irrelevant teaching. No, 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 it's the whole month of Adar, right? So we want to keep this consciousness of Adaluyada, which is to be beyond the tree of knowledge, right? Incorporating 
the infinite along the finite in terms of our consciousness and our harmonious construct in our minds. And then from there, we rock it into freedom. <laughs> because that is the gateway to freedom, which is Pesach. Right? Because then it's sort of like, what can you do to me? What can, how, what can you do to me when God runs the world? Why, what am I afraid of? Why, why should I be afraid of you? And by the way, that's not licensed not to be a mensch, to act irresponsibly or in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an untoradic way because you think, oh, you know, remember, there are two sides to the luchos. There's the person-God side and there's the person-person side. And they're one whole, Right? Being quote unquote religious doesn't excuse you from being a very kind, loving person. In other words, it, it has to cause you to be a, a kind, loving person. Or a kind, loving person has to cause you to be even more expansive and understand who the creator of all people is. So Shem should bless us that we should know that we don't know and that we shouldn't be confounded and perplexed by that, <laughs> but that we should be inspired and, and completely like liberated with that, and that we should all be blessed in, in, in our own way to be able to live with the exquisite mysteries of life, Amen. and to understand that, that certainty is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> And that somehow that elevated faith shouldn't trick us into not working as hard as we need to work. Because remember, whenever we say, God, it's all you, and we hand the bowl to God, God says, oh, I love you so much, and hands the bowl right back to us. And we go, no, but God, I really mean it. You are the highest and the best and can do everything. And you hand the ball back to him, and he goes... You know what? You know you are the most awesome and he hands the ball back to you. And it never stops for 120. It never stops as 120. So so to to rise higher and higher in terms of faith and simultaneously rise higher and higher in terms of hard work and focus. Amen. Yeah. Now for some questions and answers. So I have a question that uh was born on this on the Shabbos. Yeah, yeah. Really, uh, yeah. I asked it to you yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Phrase it. Yeah. Um, really curious about the Jewish concept around honoring or understanding the significance of uh, of emotions. And, yes. Um, it seems that Hashem uh, has given this really refined. It's given us a really refined palette uh, of emotions. It's a feedback mechanism where we can feel a whole you know a whole spectrum of different emotions to understand how we're, at least some level, what's, what's going on in our lives. And uh, I've heard certain, certain phrases in kind of Jewish thought, like never, don't, don't, follow, um, don't follow the eyes or the heart. And I understand the eyes thing, that seems pretty obvious. But the heart, the heart seems like, that, that I, I imagine they connect the heart to, to emotion. So I was yeah. hoping you, you did give us a little bit of... Uh, yeah, okay, so... Okay, so, so all of these, you know, whenever, you, when, whenever we talk symbolically, we have to always understand what 
value are we attributing to that symbolic thing, right? So, so there are different, um, different attributes that are ascribed to the heart. So the heart can, be, can lead us astray, right, in terms of um, passions for things that maybe aren't, aren't really, you know, the best for us. But the heart is also that place which directs us and, and, and so to speak, is a, is a seat of wisdom and is, um, and is a, a place of, uh, of wholeness. So we need, to, we need to understand that sometimes people will talk about the heart in what could be a, a negative way, and other times we talk about the heart in a positive way. So it can lead to confusion in terms of discussions of the heart. Right? We have to know, like, what does it mean? So, so, so sometimes the heart is the best thing in the world, and sometimes it's the worst thing in the world, right? I'll tell you something um, for me that was very, very beautiful, which is that Rabbeinu B'chayim says, it says in the Torah that um, in, in basically the, the Holy of Holies, where the, uh, where, the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the, you had the two, the wingspans of the two angels atop the Ark, that there was an area between the wingspans and it says that that's where Hashem would speak to Moshe Rabbeinu. So this is after Mount Sinai. This was now sort of like the, the go-to headquarters of getting prophecy, right? So that's... that's um, and Rabbeinu B'chayah says that that area between the wingspans was about the size of a human heart. Right? So, so there is a very beautiful way of understanding that the heart is often you know from that from the experiential side right that we 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 experience that the divine and and everything like that so um so yeah so yeah it's it's i would what i would say is um it's in both instances it's a process in both instances it's a process when our passions are ruling over us and that's our heart in, in one instance, we have to try to think it through. And like in Perkeabos, they give us sort of a formula. Say, measure what you're about to gain against what you're about to lose. Right? So they already are trying to get you to kind of switch from a more emotional place to a more intellectual place. So, so, so that's already a, um, a process type thing. Bless you. And then on the positive side, if you have a, a passion to sort of like, um, you know, say, save the world, right? Well, okay, so now let that be the beginning of a process. And it's sort of like, well, how do I save the world? Well, you know, like um, Reb Shlomo would say, what does it mean um, to, to love your neighbor? It doesn't mean the, the person who has the apartment next to you or the house next to you. It means whoever is next to you at any moment in time. That's pshat. That's what it means to love your neighbor. To, so, so, so when uh, Rabbi Shlomo Katz was in town, he was saying that this is basically someone who wants to start fixing the world. This is, this is, this is how to begin. Start by loving the people next to you because we find this terrific irony that there are a lot of people who love the entire world, but they also hate the person standing next to them. And it, it's, a, it's a very bitter irony. So when it comes to love and everything like that, it really has to go from the, from the bottom up, you know? So I would say, um, in terms of understanding the emotions, 
in both in both instances, anytime you have an emotion, use that as the first step, not the final word, but the first step in terms of formulating a coherent plan. And that might mean um, talking with people or whatever it is or giving it some thought, but not to just take that flash as the complete message. That's the beginning of a process. And, and just because you brought it up, it's something that I've been thinking about. Let me just, just tag one more thought onto it, which is that, and we have to give a whole talk on this, which is the importance of bringing your emotions into your life and your relationship with God. Because, you know, I think that was probably one of the absolute revolutionary aspects of Hasidus, of the Hasidic movement, is that, you know, it's funny, like Freud, Freud, for instance, took um, like emotions very seriously and, and, and childhood experiences extremely seriously. Because you could imagine a construct where someone would say, okay, so new, so your father yelled at you or whatever it is. It's 30 years later. What's your problem? Freud was like, your father yelled at you? And you were like, you know, this, is, this explains a lot. <laughs> you know? Like, certain things don't, you know, it's not like milk. It gets, it gets spoiled, so you throw it out and you get some new milk. What's the problem? No. What if you can never take the milk that, that went out of your refrigerator? You can't get it out of your refrigerator. Right? So that's, this is, this is but, but, um, but we, we, in terms of our, our, our service, you know, and our, just the human condition, we have to take our emotions very, very seriously. We can't be ruled by them. Remember, everything is always a balance. It's always a balance. You always have to find, okay, so where does this fit into the puzzle? Not treating it as the puzzle, because the emotions will say, you see, emotions count. So everything has to go according to my emotions. Well, that, that's, that's exactly why people are so anti-emotion, because it's like you invite Mr. Emotion to the party, and all of a sudden, it's his party, <laughs> you know? It's like, wait a second, you're in my ass. No, 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 change the music. Wait, open up the refrigerator. Put this stuff back in. Take that stuff out. It's like, what? Who are you? <laughs> you, I invited you. Now I'm your guest in my house. You see, this is, this is, this is why the emotions are like so tricky. You have to respect them and you have to give them a seat at the table but they can't rule the they can't rule the operation. But if they're not at the table, they're in the room anyway. Do you understand? There's certain people they're going to show up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, Dasan and Aviram, really, in a, in a in a serious way, they were the big thorn in the side of Moshe Rabbeinu. Throughout that, they were. Okay, without going through it, they were the one. Okay, whatever. There are many, many instances where they're trying to undermine the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu. Like, and there's a moment where, um, you know, when right before the crossing into the Red Sea, so it looks like we're lost in the desert, and then Pharaoh's chariots come after us. Well, didn't Pharaoh just let us go? How did he? know that we're lost in the desert. Like, he was like, okay, go, done. You know, you've destroyed my entire empire, done, just go. 
So the Medrash says that Dasan and Aviram were the ones who told Paro they're lost in the desert. Like, now is the time where you can attack them. That's just another instance of it. Now listen to this. Rabbi Wolfson, Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita, <laughs> brings this Medrash. He says it's a rare Medrash, which is that the whole Jews escape, right, through the splitting of the Red Sea. God saves us, right? The sea closes. What about Dasan and Aviram? They're still stuck on the other side. That there was a separate, according to the Medrash, there was a separate splitting of the Red Sea just for Dasan and Aviram. And on some level, on some level, one level, what that means is, is that God wanted them to be, to continue to be this upsetting factor in the Jewish people. That somehow this was part of our process of refinement to not listen to them and everything like that. But basically the idea is you can't get rid of those guys. They're, they're showing up no matter what. So then the question is, okay, how can I now own it, so to speak? How can I take it and own it and make it real? You know? Okay. Um, this is actually a... I had this question already, but what we've been talking about is a good segue for it. Getting back to the diaper analogy. Yeah. Um, I understand that. Uh, however, that said, and maybe this is not a Jewish concept, it's certainly a pop psych concept, um, don't you have to, on some level embrace the diaper as opposed to just eschewing it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's uh, you have to acknowledge that it's there and find, I mean, I've heard the idea of in self-love, loving the parts of yourself that aren't so lovable. Does that idea also have a place in this process that you talk about? Definitely. I mean, every single person is, is, is going to have to sort of like figure out, you know, how to hack their own system. Right. <laughs> basically. Right. Basically. Crack their own code. Yeah, basically. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and it's all going to, and so it's all going to require different, different, um, different mixtures of, of different techniques. And some people will need more self-love in order to get past self-love. And other people will need cold turkey, and and that will work for them, you know. So it's um, yeah. So so yeah, a person has to uh, be sensitive to their own process and and to um, and to uh, you know to customize it for sure. But even yeah. within the individual processes, yeah. I, I mean, I can't imagine that in any process yeah. that hating those aspects of yourself is a good idea. Well, probably for some people it is a good idea. Really? I, I would think so, yeah. Okay. That, that might be more uncommon. Hmm. But, um, but, but yeah, to, to uh, yes, I, I, I would imagine there are certain people where that would be useful. Yes.